Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference. And every second counts. I wanted to panic. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. From the pandemic to climate change, going it alone is simply not an option. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Welcome back to our podcast, Accelerating Climate Solutions. I'm Stefan Schurich from the Foundation's platform F20. And I am Ruth Richardson from the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. In this podcast, we set out to unearth the hard topics at the heart of the debate about the climate crisis and dig into what's holding back solutions from taking root. In our last conversation, we explored the transition to renewable energy and touched on the just transition debates that are part and parcel of the climate debate. This inspired today's theme, which is about understanding how calls for climate justice are shaping political action. With our speaker today, we want to understand how policy and practice designed to tackle climate change can actually end up exacerbating existing inequalities in our societies and what this means for those of us who want to advocate for change. And there's, when you look at the climate marches of the last years, you always hear this slogan that's coming up pretty often that goes like, what do you want? And then the crowd cheers climate justice and when do you want it? And the crowd says again, now. So I've been hearing this a couple of times in uh, recent years, and it seems to be coming the mantra sort of of the Generation Fridays for Future and the headlines, many activities around the UN Climate Summit. There are very different meanings to it, though, I guess, from the question of intergenerational justice to the large climate legacy of industrialized countries, or the question of compensation funds for the huge loss and damage many countries already experience from climate impacts. So the question that we would like to discuss is, what does climate justice entail? How do we ensure it's been taken seriously? And who actually is we? Across societies, the impacts of climate change affect people obviously quite differently. And it compounds the structural vulnerabilities at the heart of our society. I'm curious about discussing today what can be done differently. Where are the policy makers and the solution makers, I hope, getting it wrong? And what mechanisms need to be in place to make sure we are acting as systemically as possible and in the spirit of climate justice? Yes, Stefan, and these, the issue of justice is so central to all the debates now and becoming more and more so, which is very encouraging. The issues of justice, especially connected to social justice, environmental justice, and advocacy are all integrally linked to the movement to address climate change. So there is a lot for us to cover today. Uh, we're delighted to have this discussion with Sarah Jane Ahmed leading the climate justice fight in finance. So let's welcome Sarah. Before we dive into today's discussion properly and hear your perspectives, we have to start, though, by asking you the very first question that we ask all our guests. And that would be the one, if you press the button and change and could change one thing, what would it be? Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to this discussion. And 
your first question is is definitely a challenging one to change one thing. I think if we were looking at it from a more practical implementation perspective, the one thing that I would look to change would be the failure of the Bretton Woods system to really understand and articulate the climate emergency that we're in, because that set the tone for where public resources would be um, going to and ultimately means that we have a lack of resources as a result of illustrating so late or, or coming to the understanding so late that climate change is macro critical. Um, and we are now in an all hands on deck scenario where everyone from public to private to communities are impacted. Um, and, and currently, for example, the V20 has seen a 10% to 50% reduction in GDP growth in the last two decades alone. And as we are breaching the 1.5 degree limit of the Paris Agreement, this entails a doubling of certain impacts like extreme heat by 2030. I think it is a very adequate answer last time we heard something like we, you know, we wish we could do policymaking on an evidence basis or on a scientific evidence basis. And it's somehow related to your answer. Over to you, Ruth. Yeah, super interesting, Sarah. And yeah, just from a personal perspective, really pleased to to actually meet you and to be able to have this conversation with you. I'd love to dig into your answer a little bit more. You talk about decline in GDP growth. You also talk about doubling of certain impacts. Can we talk a little bit more about those impacts and how that's kind of showing up in your work um, from a perspective of climate justice? So we know that climate justice is an increasingly popular phrase and call to action at strikes and protests. How is it showing up? Let me just give you an example from my work at the Global Alliance where we work on food systems. We know that There's deeply unequal participation of marginalized populations in decision-making processes, as an example. So women, smallholder farmers in our case, youth, indigenous peoples. And this can leave major, major blind spots in the evidence to inform decision-making, you know, especially around solutions like agroecology. So I'm just wondering in your work, working with V20 and in the finance world, how this is showing up in, in a more sort of tangible way so we can kind of get a taste and a feel of that. The way I see this, the climate justice issue through a finance lens, it's the accountability of the delivery of finance. And it is how that finance is specifically or that funding, those resources are specifically delivered, not just through national, but subnational and community access points. It's very clear from the architecture of climate funds that we are severely lacking in subnational and community access points. And considering that they are on the front lines of this emergency, we need to better strengthen the distribution channels of climate finance, but also to ensure that there is actual accountability to this delivery. And this is why the vulnerable group of 20 ministers of finance last year called for, for a delivery plan to understand how the 500 billion from 2020 to 2024 will be delivered and now going to the next COP to have an implementation plan to articulate better where this finance is going to um, going to be accessible, what are the potential delivery channels, because that certainty is critical, especially as countries are developing uh, national plans, including climate prosperity plans, to invest this decade 
in order to build resilience, uh, better adaptive capacity, and encourage and move forward with the low carbon energy transition. Just before I come to my question, just on this particular point with regard to delivery plans, implementation plans that are required for uh, the 500 billion that were promised, do you expect any particular outcome of the next UN climate summit? What I hear is that this whole issue of climate justice becomes sort of, you know, um, will face some kind of a crunch moment in the next UN climate summit. Could you just share a few of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, critical to a successful COP will be movement on loss and damage funding. And that is an articulation of establishing loss and damage funding programs, as well as for developed countries to double their adaptation resource commitments. Because we need to be both backward-looking, and this is the loss and damage side, as well as forward-looking, which is building adaptive capacities. Uh, and so a critical moment um, and a critical progress would be progress on loss and damage. Uh, and we're also seeing that... You know, and progress, sort of determining progress or success in loss and damage, that would mean clear numbers on when the promised funding will be available and how it will be made available and so on. Yes, the, the when question is important. The how is just as important where we don't want to be waiting for a brand new mechanism necessarily, such as something like the Green Climate Fund to be up to be built up for loss and damage, but rather how do we use and enhance the existing finance architecture? How do we use the existing funds within the UN, the UN framework um, on climate change to actually deliver on loss and damage uh, funding? Because it needs to be part of the toolkit, just as adaptation funds are part of the toolkit and mitigation funds, loss and damage funding should also be part of that. And with that, the V20 are actually working on a loss and damage funding program uh, to illustrate what a practical community access point could look like and to en enable that this could be picked up by a multilateral institution so that it can easily be upscaled. Um, and so this is something that the most vulnerable are pioneering and hope to bring to the COP as an example of what a loss and damage funding program could look like. And the other thing I think to look out for is the G7-led Global Shield, where that is looking to better coordinate and recognize where the gaps are. Um, and the V20 also has a role in the Global Shield coordination. And so this is quite critical because when we look at loss and damage, we know that we must plug gaps in, in the protection against climate and disaster risks today in parallel to scaling up other financial protection solutions on the sovereign side as well as market side. So this could be insurance, Uh, contingency financing, forecast-based financing. There's a whole range of tools. Um, but what's critical today is to ensure that the gaps are plugged now because losses and damages are being felt by communities today. In your capacity as also being a member of the Task Force on Climate Development and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, we were wondering if you actually think that there is indeed a way to sort of enhance equity in climate finance or where the conflict lines are, in fact, between like ensuring justice and ensuring some kind of equitable way of the allocation of 
funding and uh, the interest of climate finance or, or the main the main things on climate finance? So at the moment, it's very much top down and a supply driven system, which means what ends up happening is there is a missed opportunity uh, when it comes to ensuring that resources are delivered to where science and data and practice points to where vulnerability sits. And so to enable an improved system and to ensure that there is equity in climate finance and for climate justice to be truly delivered, we need to work on delivery systems to community access and subnational points. And this means that the architecture would need to adjust itself in order to deliver directly to relevant entities that could serve at the subnational and community level. Sarah, I want to ask you two questions. <laughs> One is, I just think for our listeners, as I'm listening to this conversation, I would love to hear from you what vulnerable means to you. And I know there are, you know, sort of formal definitions of this within sort of the climate world. But, you know, can you just bring us right down to the ground and describe for us what is vulnerable, what is what is justice, what is equity in terms of the people in the communities that you're working with? That's my first question. So there are you know, a variety of types of vulnerability. There is physical vulnerability to climate change, and there's economic and social. And through our misassessment of uh, the importance of ecosystem services, uh, now have environmental vulnerability. So what this means is the susceptibility to harm. Climate vulnerable countries are far more susceptible to climate impacts by virtue of geography and by virtue of income level. Um, there is not enough resources in climate vulnerable developing countries to deal with climate impacts, the disasters. So if we take the Philippines for as an example, um, in one year, they were hit by over 15 typhoons. And this meant that you know during COVID and there was also a volcano uh, eruption plus extreme typhoons. Uh, in the first you know, f- four or five months, the disaster, the allocated funds to deal with disasters were depleted. And this was early 2020. And so with, with economic standstill as a result of the pandemic uh, and also inflationary pressures as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war, you know, countries are extremely susceptible to being harmed. And so that, that is vulnerability, I think, in, in simplistic terms as, as, as well as I can put it. Awesome. Thank you. It just it helps sort of put a, a human face to this. And I also really appreciate your answer because it brings a systemic perspective to this. You talked about pandemic and war and climate shocks and how this all comes together to adversely and unequally affect vulnerable populations. So then my second question is that in terms of addressing this, you've talked about accountability of delivery fi- of finance. You've talked about loss and damage. You've talked about delivery systems that allow community access. Are there other kind of central issues or concepts that you're tracking for COP27, whether it's kind of within finance or outside of that, beyond the ones I've just listed? Are there other things that you're really looking for and paying attention to? So within finance, you know, the cost of capital remains central to the fate of vulnerable economies and communities um, because they face capital costs between 6% all the way up to 25% or even 30% per annum. And this will injure ability to invest in adaptation and resilience 
And likewise, given the volatility and instability of fossil fuels, we also must recognize the, the massive and underappreciated ability of renewable energy, grid modernization, and storage to build resilience. But all of this investment, all of these opportunities um, in the economy and for communities requires very low cost of capital, uh, which developing countries don't have uh, access to. It's, it's Europe, the US, um, and advanced economies with the access to low cost capital. I think that's, uh, if I may come in here, a very crucial point. And I know that's one of your special areas of expertise when it comes to financing renewables in particular. And I think access to low-cost capital is really one of the most relevant rate-limiting factor for progress on investments into renewables, especially for subnational um, entities. I know that this is now a little bit of an issue with the um, so-called Just Energy Transition Partnerships, and we've discussed Just Energy Transition Partnerships previously as well already. Um, I'm not sure if that uh, resonates with you, if you think this is uh, moving into the right direction. And I also have a second question after that, but maybe you can just briefly just give a bit more insights on um access to low-cost capital, especially when it comes to renewables in the context of climate justice, how would this work? Access to low-cost capital means that any uh, micro, small, or medium enterprises, which uh, a lot of uh, the developing world depend on for employment, uh, would be able to upgrade their equipment, would be able to be Uh, to deal with shocks. So when an extreme weather strikes, there is business continuity. And so then they can ensure that their employees are also well supported uh, during these times. And it's about being able to withstand these shocks. So not just continuity, but also come back stronger after this. And so all of this can be made possible with lower cost of capital, because then it changes the economics uh, over the the time horizons. Because if you have a high cost of capital to do certain things, then it just it's expensive over the short term and medium term. It makes sense over the long term, but climate vulnerable economies and communities don't have the luxury of long term when it comes to financing. It's always been short term and medium term. Uh, which means that we have to work on fixing the math on that in order for the long term to come closer in timeline to the short and medium term. And uh, I was wondering if you also wanted me to comment on the energy transition. Well, the energy transition to just energy transition partnerships, they have this just element to it, at least in the terminology and um I know that you are aware of this uh, work that has been, you know, that resulted from the last UN climate summit in Glasgow, where there was a deal made among many eight or nine countries contributing to the the phase out of coal in South Africa and collaborating with South Africa. And these just energy transition partnerships now becoming sort of the new idea of uh, multilateral cooperation on financing particular renewables. So, I mean, it was great to see support to South Africa. And I think what's what's just as critical is as the 55 economies in the CVF and V20 have growth rates of over 5-6% per annum, the energy demand is growing exponentially. And so this would mean that there would need to be support provided to ensure that new capacity 
is not one that encourages uh, fossil fuel lock-in because we're already seeing incredible inflationary pressures and incredible expenses being paid and subsidized by developing country governments just to keep the power system secure. Uh, and this this is building in insecurity that, that, that we can't afford over the medium and long term, but is something that may be decided on over the short term. Uh, and so I think in terms of the energy transition programs, it would be great to have a an approach where even the uh, low-income countries and small island developing states would also have an opportunity to transition this decade. And the other point on the just part of the energy transition is that the workers in the fossil fuel industry should actually be benefiting first from energy transition packages. And this is also, well, because of two reasons. One is that the fossil fuel industry, as it is shifting as well technologically, it is not requiring as much workers, which means there is incredible job loss in the industry already, and it's been reducing each year. Uh, And so there will be a situation where there will be a lot of new unemployed in this industry, and they would need to be provided an opportunity to transition as well. And so the renewable energy, energy storage, grid modernization, all these three components in the power system... Um, would be critical to to, to upskill um, workers in the, the fossil fuel sector to also participate in the new energy economy. Right. Just one question on, also in particular for our listeners, one question in terms of positive examples and probably zooming out a bit again on the major subject of climate justice. Would you be able to define sort of some positive examples where you said, you know, this is really a good indicator that climate justice has been taken seriously? Is there anything like a good indicator for climate justice? I think a, a good indicator would be how much of our resources, and again, this is taking a, a very finance lens into account, of the delivery channels that we have, how much of that is direct access to communities? And the reason I'm mentioning this is because we hear and we see all too too many that it takes you know, three to five years to access resources for communities uh, because there are various levels to it. If we can try to curb uh, the timeframes and improve the distribution to them, we would be doing a whole lot to improve or to to course correct previous climate injustice. Um, the, the other point to mention is that when it comes to climate justice, it's, it's not just a, a matter of delivery, but also it is to the governments, both developed and developing, to deliver markets, risk markets, that have climate justice uh, or that deliver climate justice outcomes. Um, and I think that that's quite critical to build uh, and that is one way to build a sustainable risk market, is to ensure that it is incorporating and taking into consideration actively uh, climate justice. So, Sarah, let's get into the strategy a little bit. <laughs> I hear you on, you know, sort of the objective or one of the objectives anyway, which I'm understanding is really how do we make sure that the delivery channels facilitate sort of direct access of communities. So how do you make sure that or how do you to attempt to get that into the political decision-making process of the G20 and the UNFCCC? So the global shield that, that's working on coordinating 
the supply side and ensure that it is well coordinated with the demand side, that would be the opportunity to identify and support um, and strengthen delivery channels. Also to better identify what makes a good risk market and what elements are missing today. And in the meantime, as these elements are missing, we could then plug that gap with some a loss and damage funding program, for example, which is what the V20 is doing in order to deliver small grants to communities right away as quickly as possible so that they can deal with the damages felt now, but also that as we look towards the medium and long term, we would be establishing risk markets where they would have access to, for example, an insurance coverage or other sort of protection tools to ensure that they have access to this liquidity so that they can be better prepared or at least deal with the impacts uh, with more cash on hand. And for our listeners, can you just explain the Global Shield? Uh, Yes. So the the Global Shield came out of the G7 uh, ministerial, and this is specifically to improve the coordination and cooperation of partners working on reducing loss and damage. Because right now it's quite a, I mean, it's a growing field, uh, but it also means that there's a lot of cross cross-cutting work and maybe overlapping work. And because resources are finite and capacities even within countries are also finite, there has to be a way to ensure uh, cost-effective moves forward as well as a more collaborative, cooperative way so that the gaps can be plugged a lot more effectively than what is happening now, which is the gaps are left as gaps. Sarah, can I change tact a little bit? Because I'm a question that's burning on my mind is that you're so squarely in the world of finance. And a lot of what we talked about today is, you know, sort of national finance and or multilateral finance. But I'm sitting here watching a conversation between the F20, Foundations 20, and the V20. And I'm wondering from this perspective of philanthropy, how philanthropy fits into this. You know, I also come from the world. I also come from philanthropy, and and uh, the Global Alliance, of course, is a, an alliance of of foundations, and we're very much part of financial flows, but can play a very unique and I think important role. So, just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how the F twenty and the V twenty agendas might come together. Philanthropic capital is incredibly important to mobilize, especially for climate vulnerable countries, because it is highly flexible. It's also quicker to to deploy as opposed to many of these multilateral funds, which means that they could be early stage capital that could then have the multilateral capital come in in order to scale up. So to give a, a more more color, the Philanthropic community is supporting climate prosperity plans, uh, which is uh, climate vulnerable country led, so CVF and V20 led plans in order to uh, build forward stronger by maximizing socioeconomic outcomes and ensuring that this decade countries come out more adapted, resilient, and are part of the low carbon transition um, and maximize those outcomes. And So the reason for the Climate Prosperity Plan is that it's clear that a lot of the times we've sort of boxed ourselves into, you know, this is development, this is climate, this is adaptation, and this is mitigation, and then maybe this is resilience. And these boxes aren't practical 
on the ground because they all impact each other. Your ability to adapt will be impacted with how developed you are and vice versa. Um, how adapted you are will affect your development prospects. The way you're not exposed to fossil fuel volatility will ensure you know you have um, a more stable budget to spend on other items. And so you know, there, there is um, this crossover and this cl- the Climate Prosperity Plan takes a, an economic view to climate change where it tries to maximize the potential of climate action but at the same time ensures that you are maximizing socioeconomic outcomes. And so thus you would be mobilizing um, more resources as a result to climate action because it delivers you better development outcomes. I think that also may refer to what you said earlier, that climate justice should sort of become the guiding principles for um, not only um, delivering finance, but also delivering risk markets for climate vulnerable countries and for vulnerable communities to actually access funding to get out of this vicious cycle where you sort of, you know, you can't access finance because you're vulnerable um, and you're sort of, you know, affected a lot by climate impacts and uh, that exposes a risk for um, investments and so on. And to get out of that, I think, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense that this needs to be factored in. Also, I know that the Indonesian G20 presidency is very much interested in blended finance, which basically is you put money from philanthropy, from the business sector and public finance into one pot and somehow design a mechanism that would make this funding then available for um, different ways. Let's see what the outcome of that blended finance initiative will be. I have a more general question to the subject of climate justice, because we're now mainly discussing it from probably the biggest part of the climate justice discussion, uh, which is sort of the global south, global north, the mechanisms to provide funding from um, different countries to other countries and so on. I can also say that a few people would also look on climate justice from the slightly different but closely related lens, and that would be more between generations. When you hear climate justice on the Fridays for Future movement, I suppose that many of them think the question of justice is between sort of young people not having the right and the freedom to to live the way how they would, because they're so much impacted by the climate crisis that has not been protected or that has not been prohibited in the first place. So this question of intergenerational justice somehow also is related to the overall question of climate justice. My question is, is this the right understanding that I have? Would you agree that this is sort of one layer of the climate justice discussion? Yes, it certainly is. And for a lot of the climate vulnerable countries, their populations are much younger which means a lot of these impacts, they are way more impacted as a result because there is this intergenerational aspect to it. But this also means that when when doing investments or choosing, deciding whether you will build a business-as-usual infrastructure project or fossil fuel project versus an adapted or renewable energy project, their time horizon does matter because at the end of the day, they would be spending on stranded assets, um, if not built appropriately to their generation. Um, and so this is this is quite critical, I think. 
So before we, we close, Sarah, and this has been a very, very insightful conversation already, just one hint to the role of civil society in general in making progress on climate justice. As I said in the beginning, it's been really becoming a major subject in the last years, and that's good. So it's obviously a crucial point of the discussion, the debate on climate crisis, discussions and the climate debates. But where do you see the role of civil society and NGOs in making progress on climate justice? What's, what's working? What's functioning? If you look at the different various activities on climate justice. So I think what has been quite useful and could be upscaled in addition to in enabling and encouraging uh, public support around climate, is to is for civil society to better participate when it comes to the evaluation of climate finance. You know where it's actually contributing to what are the gaps because they could be much closer to communities, and thus could offer that perspective uh, that that works better for communities. The second thing is that. A lot of civil society also, because of these links to, to, to communities on the front line of the climate emergency, could support in building these effective delivery channels so that we move not just the policy side, but also to support implementation. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's an all hands on deck scenario, uh, which means we would need as much of civil society as possible to be supporting uh, engagement and resource delivery as well to uh, frontline communities. Yeah, we use this all hands on deck scenario a lot also in telling the foundations that it's, you know, there's no way of telling you, oh, it's not our our business. We're working on this, on arts, we're working on education or whatever, you know, it really is an all hands scenario also for philanthropy and for foundations to exhibit leadership in one way or the other, or at least take a clear stand on climate action and in particular on this climate justice. Rose, over to you. Okay, well, my job is to try to sum up, which is difficult because we, we covered a lot of territory. <laughs> but um, some of the main points I heard, Sarah, from you, first of all, is the need for national, subnational community access mechanisms and the accountability of those mechanisms. Uh, we talked about lost and damaged funding as critically important kind of within that field. You talked about how much of finance right now is sort of top-down, supply-driven, and how we're really missing an opportunity. You know, delivery systems that allow community access, again, underscore community access, I'm hearing that loud and clear. We talked about access to low-cost capital, the importance of that, as well as long-term capital, not just short-term. We then started talking about a little bit about the energy transition and, you know, the need for explicit support to help vulnerable countries with that energy transition. And then we talked about the importance of philanthropic capital and blended finance. And then we got into civil society and some of the things they can do. So we covered a lot of, of different actors and players and stakeholders. The final point I want to elevate is, Stefan, I'm really pleased that you used the word principle because the Global Alliance is an entirely principles-based organization. We have seven principles that define everything we do. And I'm hearing two critical principles for finance of any kind, whether we're talking about national or multilateral or philanthropic. And that is climate justice as a principle that has to be embedded in finance. And the second one is a principle of all hands on deck. 
So that would be my quick summary. I hope that reflects what what you guys said and heard. <laughs> but what a fantastic conversation, Sarah. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and your wisdom with us. And uh, to our listeners, what are your main takeaways? Would love to hear from you. And hopefully you learned a lot from this discussion. Stefan. Thank you also from my end and big thanks to you, Sarah, um, knowing well how challenging it is to fit this full hour into your schedule. So big thanks also from my end. Also big thanks to all listeners again, uh, again, as Rustad, share your feedback with us and stay tuned for the next ones. <laughs>